0: Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Oren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Sunny Shamsi. Sunny is the co-founder and CEO of DataRaid, a data commerce marketplace. DataRaid marketplace offers listings of over a thousand data providers. Sunny, welcome to World of Das. Thanks for having me, Oren glad to be here now what's the main friction between data buyers and data sellers
1: you know when we started this company and i think like lots of other data companies or companies trying to help data companies we thought okay it's the exchange the delivery of the data how data gets from a to b setting up the i know the streams and the data feeds and so on and then over the last years and we are since quite a few years in the game we noticed that it's actually way way earlier the friction so the friction is actually what we call not the fulfillment you know we always like to use the e-commerce metaphors for this it's in the discovery it's in you know a buyer finding the right data provider or the right data set they actually that fits with their requirements and they want to buy and i think this is something that is still underappreciated
0: And e-commerce in some ways has the same problem. It's the fulfillment in some ways. Okay, it's not that hard to mail someone the right pair of shoes, but just finding the thing that you really need is actually the hardest part. Exactly.
1: Because, you know, you don't go to Amazon because you say, oh, they work with DHL or FedEx. And while this makes Amazon amazing, well, of course, Amazon has their own fulfillment and so on, which makes it even better. But, well, you can find so much on Amazon. There are reviews and ratings on there. And I think this is very similar to the friction in, in data commerce. But even on Amazon, it's really hard. It's still really hard to find what
0: you need there. And the recommendations aren't always very good. And it's very, very difficult. Lots of
1: fake reviews.
0: Yeah. yeah. Even when you're just needing the right product for you, it's hard to know, like, does this shirt fit me well or et cetera. What could data companies be doing better to allow them to sell more data or speed up the transactions? How could they be better at the discovery? Could they be describing their data better? What could they do to solve some of those problems?
1: We've asked the question many, many times because this is what we are trying to solve exactly. There are two things that help to sell more data and also speed up transactions. The first thing here is really the prioritization of data. And I sometimes compare it a bit similar to the software industry. In the beginning of the software industry, you had like custom solutions, every company building their own software. And then, you know, someday, of course, I now get the German metaphor here, but someday the peeps at SAP said, Hey, why should you develop the software always new? Just use standard software and then you customize it for the needs. I think the same is with data. It's today. It's there are more data solutions out there than data products. While, of course, the leading pack of the data-as-a-service companies, they productize way more, there's still a huge amount of data companies not doing that, still being very, very you know solution-oriented, not too much product-oriented. And I think this is one thing. If you have the products, they're more standardized, you can have more standardized sales processes, more standardized delivery processes, fulfillment processes, and so on. And the second thing, to sell more data, I think it's quite obvious, I would say. It's leveraging channels and leveraging channels like crazy. And I've used to work for a data provider myself, and I was also tasked there with integrating with channels. And I think especially today, and again, taking the e-commerce metaphor, I don't know two, three, five marketplaces you heard of in the past. I mean, every large software and service company, be it Amazon, be it, I don't know, Snowflake, be it, I don't know, Azure, Microsoft, Databricks. Everyone is building a data marketplace because their customers are asking for that. And for us, we see this as sales channels. Those are all sales channels, which is beautiful for the data service companies. You know, you have to have an aggressive channel strategy to speed up your sales and sell more data.
0: Now, trust is also a major factor when it comes to getting potential buyers comfortable with a data purchase. Like, what are
1: major drivers that can drive trust or build trust faster? Transparency. I think that's quite simple. When I started in the data industry, which is now seven, eight years ago, it was very much like intransparent. Nobody really knows who sells what, who sources data from where. You know, It's like everything's a bit like uh, nobody wants to tell trade secrets. And today, as this all professionalizes, hey, people want to know the data supply chain. They want to know where it comes from. They want to know who is this company I'm buying data from. Is the company going to survive for the next few years? This is definitely the key thing. A lot of data
0: companies don't even publish their schema on exactly. their web, like you have to talk to a salesperson. Sometimes you even have to like sign an NDA before you get their schema or something like that, which does seem a little bit crazy. Like, Do you think that's just going to go away and everyone will have their schema, everyone will have all their fill rates for every column, everybody will? Is that just going to become the norm in the future?
1: Yes, 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 yes. I mean, it's like natural selection. The ones that will not do it will not be there in the future anymore because the industry is maturing it's really becoming a data commerce it's not so much anymore you know the shaking hands walking around of course this will always be there and it's amazing but it's becoming a very mature b2b e-commerce industry and you have to be transparent you have to share samples i mean there's also a huge friction you know the buyers we work with and of course the data providers you would not imagine but just getting access to a sample sometimes is so difficult. And it's a major thing of trust. So if you get a sample fast, and it's a good sample, buyers also say, hey, that's, they're trying to help me.
0: I think buyers also worried that the demos are being canned. So if they request a sample, and then the data buyers, well, you want, actually want a different sample, or they're worried that they're going to get something that was lots of QA effort on or something like that, or it takes a long time. But if you actually like request a random sample and you get it back minutes later, then it's great. Then you know the sample wasn't canned and now you can have a lot more trust in it. One of the things that SafeGraph has been doing is we actually publish our bugs every month for the prior month just to try to build that transparency. And the other thing is just people always ask you, how accurate is your data? And of course, usually you don't know, like you're not going to know, like precisely it's 96.8. You won't know it's accurate. And One of the things that we always tell our customers, we have no idea how accurate we are, but we can tell you that we had these like 400,000 bugs last month and we had another 300,000 bugs a month before. Like we can be confident we'll probably have at least in the hundreds of thousands of bugs this month. It's just going to be happening. And the way to get better, the way to get more accurate is to get feedback so that you can constantly be working on some of these things. Where's like the extreme version of transparency? How do you get even more transparent?
1: You know, the extreme version, I think it also comes with the prioritization. So transparency, of course, on the data you have, which means like your data dictionary, the fill rates, uh, samples. Sometimes, I mean, samples, it's just the first thing. What we see, I mean, lots of data providers, of course, also go then to like longer trial periods where you can test the data first and so on. I mean, you could call this transparency, of course. The other part is also like commercial transparency. This is something which is even more interesting because what we also saw some data providers doing. It's quite uh, common in the industry that you know you have this pricing which is based on who you are. If I come and I'm from a huge. Ah, oh, got it. So pricing transparency, like pricing transparency, exactly like. This this product always costs the same. If you're an IBM, you pay the same as if you're, you know, a young startup. And I think there's also some pricing in transparency where this is not always very transparent and it's also off putting.
0: I mean it's always hard when you're an enterprise company and my last company at LiveRamp, I remember in the same week we signed up two retailers that were almost identical size and one was paying three X But the other one was paying for no good reason. (laughs) It just happened to be that way. Also the sales post. And I remember just being like, this is so random. Like that's what enterprise sales (laughs) is. It's like, it's always like this random thing that exists. And you can imagine in
1: data that that could be solved over time as well. Exactly. Just more price transparency, being very upfront with that's the level of service, the level of accuracy or of noise. Because sometimes it makes sense, somebody paying 10 times more for the same data, but sometimes it's not exactly the same. Because there's one column more, which is so much more valuable, it's not that clear cut.
0: Or they need slightly different data rights. Even one of the things that we say at Safegraph, we have a standard agreement, which most of our customers just sign. But every once in a while, you get a big company and they want a red line, they had agreement. Great. You want to redline that agreement? We're just going to charge you more because now it's going to cost us more exactly. to, to deal with it. So, if you take the standard, yeah, exactly. So, then one of the big part, like in a data thing, similar in, in software, you kind of need to evaluate, as you mentioned, the data before you buy it. But data evaluation can take some time. There's not always a standard way of evaluating the data, there's not necessarily tools to evaluate the data. And it often is a very large portion of the sales cycle. Is the data evaluation? Like, what can the industry do to shorten those cycles
1: to make the data evaluation work better? Again, I would take you the similarity to the software industry. It's the same. I mean, it really depends on what data we're talking about. Are we talking about, you know, like a small data set and weather data in San Francisco or Berlin for 2022? Well, it's a few hundred bucks or something. You buy it and that's it. There's not a huge evaluation going on, probably we talking probably about larger enterprise license or larger deal larger subscription which is i know one or two years and i think it's the same with software usually when you buy software you don't just swipe a credit card by the software and that's it there's like a trial process you try the software you do this you do that you know the larger the software deal the larger also of course the evaluation of the software now one thing that is very different and which leads to the next point with data is usually when you give access to software once it tries over, just cut the access and it's gone. you know with data, of course, it's different. If you give the data, well after the period, the client potentially could still use it. so there's always this additional you need to make sure that they delete it, and it's always a hard thing exactly. that's where this whole you know I call it like agreement overhead comes in so. The number of NDAs.
0: It is a bit different. Like when you give someone access to software, you usually give them access to like the entire software. Maybe they can evaluate it for two weeks, but when you give someone access to data, it's usually still a very small sample of your data. It might be 1% of your data that they get to use and stuff. So Depends. even in the worst case scenario that they forget to delete it or something, exactly. like,
1: it's still only a small percentage well it depends right like if you talk to a hedge fund they usually come to you and they say well give us all the data because you know we need everything to correlate correctly right like you do need the ndas and then the test evaluation agreement and so on so this is one of the things that i think can be more standardized or there could be even more clean room software providers that provide more you know this specific evaluation step to be more faster and trusted i mean in the end it's a huge buying center there's the data scientist in there that needs to look at the data. There's the product person, and so on, and so on. But as with every complex purchase, I think this will always be there.
0: Something about like when a company should be buying data. I'd be interested in your thoughts. So the way we think about it is, as a company, you shouldn't be buying data until you can effectively use your own data a lot of retailers are still in like the very early stages of getting value out of their own data okay probably doesn't make sense to go buy external data if you can't even use your own data well but there's other retailers that maybe they're really far along on that curve they've been very effective about using all the different data that they generate and then maybe it makes sense like is that the way you think about it? like there's kind of a sophistication point you have to get to before you start buying the data
1: that is a a good question Well, if you really have no internal data capabilities, if you're a very small mom and pop shop that never heard of anything Well, it's not even that. I mean, even some of the biggest retailers,
0: I'm just using retailers as an example, but there's tons of other companies. Even some of the biggest retailers are terrible at using their internal data. Like they're still very, very early. You just look, just they barely have the right data science resources. They're not getting the most out of their own pricing data or you know their own traffic data of their store or you know whatever it might be. They're still very, very early. If you look at like real estate companies, like most of them are really, really, really barely touching their own data. even if you think of hedge funds, you mentioned hedge funds. most hedge funds are just not very good at using data. There's only like a hundred hedge funds that are actually really good at using data at this point. So it's still really early on valuing data world.
1: I think, yes, probably it's also quite logical. Like you need to get your own shit together, your internal data, of course, together. It's more not a question of internal versus external. It's for me, the question is rather like, do you have a use case with an established system where you already use your data and you came to a point where your data is not sufficient anymore? And so I don't like to see it as a general thing. Well, this company is not mature because usually. In a company, you find a team where there's a very talented data scientist, product manager, and engineering team that does have a grip on their data. And for them, it does make a lot of sense. For a company in general, where you know they don't have a lot of capabilities to deal with the internal data, they don't have a strong data warehouse or capabilities internally, well, of course not. Don't buy stuff you can't use. But I think it's on certain points.
0: Just like software, a lot of software sits on a shelf and a lot of data ends up sitting on a shelf as well.
1: And the software sellers, they're very happy with that,
0: at least in the past. Well, you're not. That's a terrible customer because they're going to churn. If you sell software to someone and they don't use it, you sell data, someone don't use it. It's actually bad as the data seller because you just spend all this time selling to a customer, which is very, very expensive. You don't really make money on a customer until year two. So if they churn, it's really, really bad for you. You really need them to use your data and get benefit from that data.
1: And that's also a lot of pricing methods then change. The same in software pay as you go. It's a similar thing in data. So if you don't use it, you don't pay for it. And I think those are also pricing models that come more with data, typical API pricing models.
0: Now, a lot of companies forego buying external data because they just don't understand what the ROI will be. How can data company demonstrate ROI better from their data?
1: What I would say here is that data on its own doesn't have any ROI. It's like an ingredient. What we always say or what we see very successful data as a service companies do is they attach their data very clearly to use cases because only with the use case, the data has an impact on the use case, makes a certain use case very useful. Like, for example, job postings data. I see lots of VCs using uh, job postings data to see if the startups, the scale ups. are growing. In. It's a standard thing. You know, I've seen so many VC dashboards often, you know, where they track like the startups and it's always job posting. How <laughs> I many job postings? I mean, they all use yeah. the same data. And again, like as a job posting data provider, which is mostly, you know, web scraping data providers, it's impossible to say what's the value of job posting data. But if you then connect it to, I know, to the VC use case saying, Hey, You can be earlier seeing which startup is going through the roof. We can normalize it in some sort of way
0: or whatever it might be.
1: Exactly. And you find the hot companies before it's officially announced and so on by just looking at that, then hey, you get the better deals and so on. Suddenly, you have a very sexy case for your data. And that's what we see the successful providers doing. They find amazing use cases for the data or their customers basically find it. And then they promote this a lot with the use case. Sometimes there's like a way of just like tweaking
0: it a little bit, like you could give them the raw job postings data, which could be really, really valuable. Or you could say, hey, we'll just give you a ping when we see a startup that's actually starting to post a bunch of jobs. We'll give you an immediate alert. So we won't send you very many, but you'll get that alert immediately and you could start and we'll push it right into your CRM or whatever it might be. So it becomes, it's data or maybe it's a little bit more of a solution that you get exactly now how do you think about is there ways to we talked about pricing a little bit but Data pricing is a little bit harder sometimes than software. Software you often have, there's some usage pricing or it's like by the seat or maybe have a little bit more advanced pricing like a Databricks or something like that, which might be by like compute or something. But there's a small number of SaaS pricing models. With data, it does seem it's a bit all over the place. Is there
1: a way of getting that to a little bit more of a standard that's one of the most commonly asked questions when a new customer, new data provider comes to us, like, hey, data pricing, can you guys help us? How should we do it? Especially, of course, the younger ones. There are sometimes companies coming to us, they're like two, three people, really like data startups. That's the first question they have because they really understand the data. They know everything about the data. But then when it's about like time to price, time to find the market and so on, it's like, now how do I do it? To be honest, if I would have a great question here, I would probably build a product out of it and then sell it. Help you get pricing better or something. Yeah. <laughs> Just to give some perspective on this, what we do see with pricing, at least on general level happening, more data providers are adopting subscription based pricing, even if it's a delivery method or product type, which is like an API. More data price are going to subscription based pricing because again, similar to the software industry, it's way more planable. It's easier. It's easier both for the buyer and the seller.
0: It's easier to plan. It's also
1: more customer value because what you also said in the beginning, you said, "Hey, the customer buys something, they don't use it." I think it's the same with you know one-off purchases. You buy like a data set, list of POIs or whatever, and the moment you've bought it and you did not subscribe to the updates, it's already outdated. And if there's inaccuracies, you will not benefit from this, and so on. So, I think it's better for both sides to go into subscription-based pricing. That's what we ought to see in the industry. I think this also should be the standard. How the subscription should be priced and so on, well, it depends on so many factors, like, I don't know, delivery, uh, frequency, update frequency, uh, depth, breadth, noise, accuracy. It is impossible to say.
0: There's this trope out there that there's these big companies and they have a bunch of exhaust data and they could like build a division where they sell that exhaust data. But I really have not seen that happen very often. Have you
1: seen actually it work in practice? So you mean businesses not primarily being data as a service company? Yeah, they're not
0: primarily a data company. They do something else, maybe they're whatever they do, but they have a lot of valuable data as all companies do. And they know the data is valuable. And so they're like, Build a little division and sells lots of data and is really, really successful. It doesn't seem to happen. You hear about it occasionally, but it doesn't seem to happen that often.
1: You know, I've worked with mobile network operators in the past and we tried to build models where they monetize the data in a privacy-secure way. And
0: some of them do. In Europe, it's a little bit more common.
1: Exactly. I also have not seen you know this working out too much. Where I saw this working out quite well is when companies didn't treat this as less exhaust and monetizer, give me some money for that, but they really treated it as real viable business and committed to building a data business. I might be wrong here, but I just look at one of the best examples, which is for example, stock exchanges. I wouldn't assume the stock exchanges started building their business base and then being like, ah, in the future we will build a Nikkei market data and I don't know Nasdaq data. So they started, you know, as stock exchanges and then they noticed, oh, there's a beautiful, beautiful data we are collecting here. And they found demand, which is super important. They found demand for that data and monetize this, build real businesses around this. And this is what I see working. But this just monetize your data, your data exhaust, this is crap. You need to really commit.
0: One of the reasons I think it's so rare is that it's different DNA. Being a data business is very, very different DNA. you need to hire very, very different people and then are they going to work well in your company or are they going to not interact well with the antibodies of that company and stuff? So it's always hard for like a B2B business to go to B2C or B2C to go to B2B or just you have all these different like DNA things that happen out there.
1: And it's difficult to build a data company. It's not like you just sell data and everybody loves your data, wants your data. It is difficult. It's difficult to find the right buyers, build a model. It's harder to build a data company than to build a
0: software company. There's like thousands of software companies worth over a billion dollars. There's only a handful of data companies built in the last 20 years that are worth over a billion dollars. So it's a much, much harder road. Now, you see a lot of cool data companies that are out there. What are some like cool data sets that you're very excited about that are coming online or that other people should be thinking about?
1: When we started this company, we also, didn't, in our mind, when we thought of data, we always thought of tabular data, like tables, rows, columns, and, so columns. and Exactly. And I think that's what everybody has like in their mind. And there's amazing stuff in there. What I've came to appreciate over the last years, also, of course, with this hyping around ML and AI and so on, of course, then, then data sets like audio data sets, video data sets, image data sets, and I know the video data sets. Of people picking up cups, uh, hundreds of those videos of somebody picking up a cup. But for training. Exactly. And I find it quite interesting because it also gives a different perspective again on data. I think sometimes data is a very complex topic. It's very nerdy, which is great, but it's becoming also way more mainstream. And I think people can better understand, okay, data set doesn't always have to be just, you know, columns and rows. It can also be, I know, audios with sentiment scores of, I know, desktop calls or something or it can be videos of people picking something up or cats walking across the street for autonomous driving or something. I think it opens the audience more if you look at those data sets as well. You
0: know, these training data sets, in some ways, like they're really valuable to train an ML model. In other ways, they do seem like they're one and done. You're going to buy a data set of someone picking up a cup. Once you train your model, you don't need that data set anymore. So it's not like you're going to be renewing. It's kind of a one-time purchase for most of these trainings do you see that way or is there some sort of temporal aspect to it that you're always going to need obviously like for stock market data you're always going to need that data
1: the updates might be a bit different in this area than when you watch have the tabular data where you just you know get more of the same thing you know more information like a timeline yeah like once you train it's a
0: cat or not a cat I don't know, maybe you might need a dog one or a rabbit one or something, but...
1: That's exactly the case. Hey, now you can detect cats, yeah? But then, oh, you notice, oh, there's a dog. Okay, now you have to detect dogs. And I know now you want to see somebody picking up a bottle and the training goes on, goes on, goes on. So you probably need more different things. You might not need a million people picking up a cup, Maybe a 1,000 is fine, but then you need 1,000 more of people picking up a bottle, people picking up a smartphone, and so on, and so on. So I think it's just a different way of updates, probably. This is a
0: data podcast. One of the questions we love to ask our guests is, what are some data sets you wish existed, but you
1: don't think exist today? What I would love to just see more, because I do see there's a lot of societal value in this, is data sets around medical imagery, healthcare stuff, and so on. It's a topic that needs a lot of anonymization and so on and so on. But I do think there is so much amazing data from studies, also from, uh, you know, so much history of diseases and what you have. If this could just be, I don't think the problem is we can't use it. It's more like, how can you make this data available also, you know, on a basis where it can keep its statistical characteristics. This is what I would love to see way more and, you know, data companies solving this problem because you can really save lives with that. This is what also keeps me in this industry. Like data is not just there, you know, for advertising and algorithmic trading, you know, all the key use cases everybody makes money with. It's damn, it can have such an amazing influence on all our lives. And the medical data to me seems like
0: the most impactful, easiest data to get an impact from very, very, very quickly and is so frustrating that it's not available. It's very, very hard to get access to and there's lots of excuses why people won't give people access to, but we could be saving you know millions of lives a year and making tens of millions of people eat better off. Maybe they can have better treatments or they could be happier or they don't have to suffer as much with certain chemotherapies or whatever it might be if we had better access to medical data. Is that a government problem? Like, you got to get the EU to push it through? Or is it just like a incumbency problem? So obvious, like, why is it not happening? It's a hairy
1: problem. So it's a complex problem, probably not just one reason. And of course, one thing is government and also depends really on the countries. I'm not a medical data expert or a healthcare data expert. But what I do see is it's a very heavily regulated area. And At least in Germany, you know, it's a very often industry. So there is a lot of data. It's just sometimes not digital. It's somewhere in archives.
0: And even when it gets digital, when it goes from paper to digital, often it gets wrong or it's mischaracterized. The data is so error prone with the medical data, which is also makes it very, very difficult. Like they'll say it's this, but it's actually that, or they'll code the shoulder like an elbow or et cetera,
1: or they actually code it on your right, but actually it's on your left. Exactly. So there's a whole bunch of problems in this. And of course, it's then also the whole question of privacy and so on. So what I would see there is like there are technical solutions for that. Like there are OCR solutions to scan this data. There is synthetic data algorithms that totally anonymize this data and so on. So I wouldn't say it's technically not possible. It's technically very possible. It's more like there's so many players involved in that. It's very complex. There's some stigma on not touching sensitive data which I think will take some time and more companies just going into that and uh, driving this more.
0: You just mentioned synthetic data for sensitive data sets, whether it be medical data sets or financial data sets or data sets generally about people, which are much more sensitive than data sets about other nouns like products or places or companies or something. Do you think we'll start to see more synthetic data hit the market?
1: Yeah, massively. And we already see it. We see this a lot on our platform be it synthetic data of i don't know bank transactions or ehr electronic health records and so on so there are data providers that are doing that and it makes a lot of sense because in most cases i would say nobody's really interested in the individual behind this it's like nobody's interested in that it's not like oh i want to know i mean of course if you want to do illegal stuff you want to know who did what but if we're talking about businesses they just want to have the statistical properties of a certain data set. And we do see synthetic data coming more and more onto our platforms, our customers doing that. And I think this is an amazing trend because it opens up a whole new world of data, as we talked before, that was impossible to be opened up. And I do remember times where you know synthetic data wasn't the word even that I knew. you know, I come from Germany, so Germany is always like privacy, privacy, privacy it was like, oh, anonymization is impossible. That was the German thing. Anonymization is impossible. Well, there is something like pseudonymization, but anonymization is impossible. Have you heard about the Netflix case? There's the story. Exactly. Then synthetic data came and I was like, okay, damn, that's not possible. In Germany, everybody says anonymization is impossible. And I looked into this, it's just science. And I was like, okay, it's possible. It's amazing. So I expect to see way, way more synthetic data in the future.
0: The cool thing is about synthetic data is if you know what questions are being asked, you can create synthetic data that could be 99% representative of the original data. And that's great. What becomes difficult is sometimes when you don't know what questions are being asked, then the synthetic data may not be representative in the end. You do have to be understanding and working with your customers to say, hey, like we know that the synthetic data can work really well for these types of questions, these types of things. We haven't yet tested it for this other set. So kind of you're on your own risk, caveat emptier with the other types of stuff. One of the things that we've been thinking about at SafeGraph is doing a anti-evaluation where you start to say, hey, here's the things that we're confident our data doesn't work well in. We've tested a bunch of things and we have all these white, when you have a white paper, you have customer testimonials, you usually say about all the things that worked, But we've also done a whole bunch of tests and then we found out like it didn't work. And we're confident, like, hey, it (laughs) it works really well in these 50 situations, but it doesn't work well in these other 10 situations. Have you ever seen data company do something like that?
1: To be honest, no. And I love it. You're running Safecraft as a very innovative uh, company and you're testing out way more concepts. And I do love this a lot because, you know, you also, with this concept, save a lot of time for your customers or you create some people trying to challenge this. I haven't seen this too much, but I would love to see this more. Yeah, you save time,
0: and also you engender a little bit more trust. When you point out your flaws, I think you engender, sometimes companies are like, we're great at everything, we're amazing, we could do this, we could do that, it's like the Swiss army knife of everything, it's like, it's a little bit more believable, okay, we have this truck, the truck is not a sports car, the truck does these things really well, but it's not going to go from, you know, zero to 60 as fast.
1: I love that, would love to see this more.
0: (laughs) We're really bullish on join keys for data standardization. And ideally, join keys are great because you can ask better questions across many data sets. Like, how do you think about join keys?
1: Even take a step before that when we think about data standardization. One of the things you think before join keys is just looking at, you know, the standardization also of naming conventions of attributes and so on. So even attributes that might not be join keys, what we've seen so much, and we do have quite a lot of insights also with our marketplace. People call, you know, business name, business title, company name, company title, and so on and so on. So there's a whole range of standardization. Which is all about attributes, which is still something that needs to be solved because it just makes also again the discovery faster. Because you're just speaking the same language. That's one thing we are trying also to drive with our company, more sanitization. And the other thing on join keys, yes, that's even the second step, because when we talk with buy side, with data buyers. Data you buy is not used in a silo, in you know, in the tower. It's usually used with your internal data. You need to make sure that you can match it internally, and it doesn't always have to be just one key. There might be a combination of keys, which is usually the case that makes sure it really matches. And it's also a complex topic to the extent that it really depends on what kind of data or entity you're talking about. Right, like you mentioned, there's not just people. There are different themes. There's products, people, companies, processes. For example, just looking into, uh, I know, company data, for example, there are some kind of accept the join keys, let's say, I know, the dance number, which helps you to get a match on a... Yeah, or a stock ticker or something like that. Or the ticker or something, or I know, the tax ID or something. Domain name. Exactly. But there is no one large join key. So it's usually a combination. And I do advocate a lot for open join keys. So I don't think it's very helpful if you have like proprietary things, like I know dance number or something, because you know, you're always dependent on one company, you have to pay for it. It's very expensive. Exactly. So I think that's where the industry has to come together in the specific areas. You know, if you're a company data company, make sure to drive this topic in developing a common join key everybody can adhere to.
0: The most common join key in data is time. We we'll probably all use like Unix time or something, right? To do a join key or uh, dollars. We usually convert into dollars and then we do a join key on dollars. Those are two very great publicly available join keys that work incredibly well. It would be great if there are way more of those keys so we can start joining data sets. Exactly. We talked a little bit about privacy. Like, how do you think things like GDPR have affected the development of the data
1: market? Help to professionalize the market. So I do remember working for a data company during the rollout of GDPR. And I was also like driving, you know, the project and achieving also compliance and so on. And I think back in the days, lots of data companies that do deal with personal data, not every data company deals with personal data. You have to be very clear on that. The ones that made an effort to be compliant, they still exist today. And I think they just build more trust and the ones that didn't will have problems. Now being very honest. Looking at the industry, because we do have insights on lots of different industries and lots of different areas, I think, especially in Europe, there was a drop in available data around this, and this is due to GDPR. And that's just a fact. not saying if it's good or if it's bad, but definitely there's a lot of data that obviously, in this case, then was not consented by the customers. And in this case, companies stopped then uh, selling this, which I think is a good thing. Consent is always something very valuable. Now, there are starting to be, as you mentioned at the top
0: of this podcast, there's starting to be a bunch of other data marketplaces that are coming about, like Snowflake and Amazon and Azure. And how do you think these idea of data marketplaces are going to evolve over time?
1: One conviction I have is that every large SaaS company, every SaaS company will build a data marketplace. I think it's inevitable. They will build in data marketplace. Once you have
0: enough customers and you have an ecosystem.
1: But the moment, because your customers, if you're a cloud company and you're a software as a service company, your customers use their internal data on your cloud. And yes, of course, they want to enrich their internal data. And in the best case, they want to do it on your platform. They don't want to go out. I call it in-app data shopping. You want to get the data directly within the platform you're using. So that's the first thing I strongly believe in. And it's also
0: somewhat in their own interest. Companies like Snowflake, AWS, Databricks, et cetera, like the more data you have, the more money they make. So they want you to get more data into the system. And
1: it's also trend prevention for them. And the second thing I do believe is when I look at those marketplaces, I think today we are sometimes calling their creations marketplace, which are actually not marketplaces. They are data exchanges. So they facilitate the technical exchange of the data. For me, a marketplace always has a very. There's sometimes there's a discovery mechanism. There's a discovery mechanism, mechanism, right? The
0: search engine or something.
1: Exactly, but for qualify as a real marketplace, you also you need to kind of facilitate the commercial transaction quite a lot. And I think this is something, especially also the payments piece, which lots of those large players have not yet adopted fully. And I do believe also in the future they will focus way more also on facilitating the commercial transaction. Because I think this creates the magical experience and also getting access to external data. I, I always compare it to, you know, the Uber experience. The first time I used Uber, for me, it was not like, oh, it was such an amazing experience and it got me from A to B. Well, with the taxi, I also got from A to B. But I think the coolest thing about the experience was I asked the driver, like, now, do we have to pay or how do we do it? And he's just like, yeah, no, you know, you can just get out of the car. <laughs> you know, and I was like, wow. That was amazing. Right. I love that. That's my favorite thing about Uber, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's the same how we work on those marketplaces. You will not even notice that you're buying data because it will just be part of the user experience.
0: Question about the German tech ecosystem. In some ways, there's a lot of tech companies, especially in Berlin, where you are, kind of a thriving thing. But in other cases, you could say, well, Germany's kind of underperformed. And there's still, there's probably 20% of the startups in Germany than there are in tiny little Israel. You know, you have all these super smart people. Berlin is kind of a hotbed of place where a lot of people from all over the world are moving to and going to. How do you describe the German tech ecosystem?
1: If I'm being very honest, I don't know too much about because I don't spend a lot of time in this. I really focus on our company and I don't jump around a lot on conferences or something. Just being part one entrepreneur in this ecosystem, what I do see a lot is that in the German ecosystem, there's a lot of value on or placed on. How do I say this? I want to say it in a nice way. Like there's a lot of value placed on digitizing physical processes. It might be part of the German history. You know, it's like, ah, this one industry, it's very chill Now let's digitize it and build some software around this. People focus a lot on very... I don't know. There was this whole scooter craze and then the quick commerce craze and so on. So not very technical companies. It's basically a delivery company that has an app or something. So that's something I saw a lot. Not as hard tech or something. Exactly. And this is very different from, for example, Israel. And why is that?
0: Because there's so many huge German companies that are known for their technology. Like obviously technology is kind of steeped in the German culture
1: think of the large software companies from Germany. And, you know, in my mind, I only think of the ones with the legacy. I think of SAP, that's the largest software company of Germany. It's 10 times bigger than, the, or I would say 20 times bigger than the next company.
0: Right. And the second largest of all time in Germany was Wirecard, which didn't turn out to... <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: So I think that's something sometimes lacking a bit like this very technical focus. And I think it's also part of in Israel, like in Tel Aviv, you have those very smart people spending time, you know, also in the military working very on like technical stuff. There's like this real tech mindset, not just make a quick buck. I know the rocket copy stuff from the U.S. mindset. And I think that's something that is still developing. Every ecosystem is different. Has it advantages and disadvantages?
0: Last question we ask all of our guests. What conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice?
1: It might be a German thing and also an American thing. I think that's something that is shared around both cultures, which is just work hard, uh, good things will come. And I think it's similar in Germany, you know, we say schaffe uh, schaffe Häusle which means just work, work build a house and you know everything good will come. And
0: schaffe schaffe Häusle
1: And I think it's the same in the US, hey, work hard and then you build the American dream. You know, coming from a background of migration, I did see a lot of people in my life that work very hard But, you know, they did not make it or they're still working very hard and still struggling on something. So I think that's generally some bad advice if you just tell people, well, you just work hard. It's just one factor. You have to work very hard to earn your privilege to, you know, climb the social ladder. But there are other things which I do think count in even more, which is you need to understand what you're working at. You can be a cleaner, cleaning person. You cannot just work hard and make it. Well, you have to understand everything about cleaning. You know what I mean? Like you have to be also at the right time at the right place. For example, an Apple probably would have never worked in Berlin. So I think this is generally bad advice just to tell people work hard to work hard. You have to understand everything about the stuff you're doing and you have to understand the game. And I think this is something coming from my background. I learned it's not just hard work. Make sure to understand the game and. This is how you build something that's valuable. And that's how you also can climb in society.
0: That's really interesting. Well, thank you, Sunny Shamsi, for joining us at World of DAS. I follow you on LinkedIn. I encourage all of our listeners to engage with you there. I really appreciate you coming on the
1: World of DAS podcast. Thanks so much. And thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Auren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Auren, and we'd love to hear from you.